This episode is sponsored by Revelation Records. Revelation is the label behind Youth of Today, Gorilla Biscuits, Texas to the Reason, and many more since 1987. Right now, Revelation is ramping up with two awesome new releases. The first is All in a Dream, a brand new record by the band Praise, out May 6th, as well as a new EP from Be Well, titled Hello Sun, out May 20th. You can pre-order both records by going to revelationrecords.com. Our listeners can also get 20% off Revelation-only merchandise by using the code ONESTEP. That's O-N-E-S-T-E-P at checkout. Thank you for supporting our sponsors, and thank you so much, Revelation. Uh, I grew up and had so many formative experiences uh, with Revelation bands, and I really appreciate you supporting the podcast. Welcome back, and Todd, welcome to the show. Hey, Ram. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, I'm super psyched. Uh, and first of all, I haven't seen you in years, partially because of COVID and partially because we live in, in different places. And I got to say, you've got uh, beautiful locks right now that you didn't have last time. This is uh, my COVID hair. I haven't cut my hair since the COVID pandemic started. And uh, I'm just going to keep it going until I don't have to wear a mask everywhere I go. Have you considered that maybe your hair is the cause of COVID? <laughs> it might be in the, the end strands of this and keep it recirculating. <laughs> yeah. it, it, that could be happening. Uh, it's just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying the two seem correlated. All right. Uh, dude, it's super awesome to see you, uh, to definitely see you. It's great. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, you know, I got a, love, a lot of love and respect for you. So before we get too far into it, uh, I know we did an intro, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. If you can share who you are and what is it that you do both professionally and also in the punk scene. All right. My name is Todd Pollock. For those who don't know, um, I've been photographing bands and going to shows since uh, 1994. Um, besides that, I'm also an accomplished architect. I've been a registered architect since uh, 2009 and uh, worked in many jobs, created many buildings, and now I work on the owner side of the building and construction industry. So now I get to direct other architects and, and designers to do projects. Um, I pretty much lived most of my life. I, I was born in Minnesota, but quickly moved to Massachusetts where I've been pretty much for the entirety of my life. Um, either north or south of the city, but never in the city. Never had the pleasure of living in the city. Uh, it's interesting to me that you started with your work as a photographer rather than your work as an architect. <laughs> Which do you connect to more? Who's more you? Um, photography is more me. Architecture is just something I'm good at. Okay. Uh, tell us, how did you get into photography? What was the path for you? Um, to me, it was just started like, again, I never took any uh, classes in high school or anything. Um, I just, again, I started going to shows and then I was like, this is something really interesting going on. And I just wanted to do stuff for my own posterity. And again, most of my early stuff is just taking on one of those like $20 Vivitar, you know, snap and wind kind of cameras. 
you know, nothing sophisticated, just a, you know, cheap thing. And then it just started to, you know, snowball. And, and I basically learned on the fly, like, I've definitely taken my fair share of just absolutely horrible pictures because in, or just, you know, sometimes I go look back and I go, I was at that show. And I'm like, oh, how come I only have two pictures from that show? Because that was just the reality of it. Um, you know, when you don't have what you have now with digital, where you instantly know that you're doing something wrong, the learning curve is a lot steeper. You know, you're just like, oh, I got, I took two rolls of film. I got two pictures that are, that are, even have something in them that is yeah. anything so well it's an interesting leap though right like from so some people just go out and let's say before digital someone just people just go out and take photos of things they like and they take those photos and they look at them themselves maybe they show them some to some friends maybe they put up them put them up in a gallery there's a big difference between that and being part of a community where you take your photos and they become parts of layouts. They go in fanzines. You know, you have your own. You have your own um, book uh, that you've put out. It's an interesting thing about just like the willingness to be like, oh yeah, I do this thing, and I I'm basically learning as I do it, and I'm going to be in a position to put it out in front of people. Was that natural for you? Did it happen quickly, or is it something that you worked your way towards? Um, it's funny because. Actually, my friends are the ones who, like, would provoke me to, like, see them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I would have put them out there if people, like, didn't want to see them. Like, there was actually a point where, you know, here's, here's the evolution of the true Instagram, right? Like, I would take pictures and then get them developed. And the next show, I would bring them in a photo album so people could look at them. Whoa. So that's, like... <laughs> The leap of, you know, how Instagram worked back in, you know, the mid 90s was yeah, yeah. take pictures and then bring them to the next show so people could see them. Yeah. Because um, everybody would ask me about them, you know, and I was like, oh, the only way I guess to show you this is to physically bring them to a show. Well, and what's interesting is like, who's a who's a who's in a band? Who's a writer? Who's a photographer? It's often just the person who decides to do it, whether or not they're good at it or not. So did you notice a difference the way that people interacted with you in the scene once you had a camera? Um, not at first, not, a, you know, I don't think, a, I think I'll, I would say for the first four years or so, I, I was just, I felt, uh, I mean, there was no difference. It was just, oh, there's this person who's doing that thing. Cause I'm starting off, I was very, introverted person you know what i mean i i kept to myself i mean i did happen to know people just because of you know where i went to school in the, the merrimack valley because we had you know people like you know john Lacroix and and all the guys in cave and steve brodsky did his own little zine so that stuff got used for that's those kind of publications just because of those are the people in my area. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I was known for it at all. I think it was just sliding in there. <laughs> yeah. But at one point you became no known for it. So what was the tipping point? Um, geez, it's hard to think back that far. Um, I think the part where 
I really got known for it was it would probably be the um I think when Ten Yard Fight started using my photographs and stuff. And you know, in Caven using my you know, again, the people in my area using my photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it started with Caven, Ten Yard Fight. But actually, let's take it further back. How did you even get into the punk and hardcore scene? Because it, it's an interesting thing for me. You, you'd said you're a little bit introverted. And ever since I've known you, you've always been like super affable, easy to talk to. Like you, right. you introduced yourself to me, if, I, if I'm right. Like I think we met at a hardcore show. And either maybe you might have come up and, and shown photos or we talked about photos. Somehow we ended up t- chatting. Do you remember how we met, actually? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, that, that was that has been my, my bridge to socialize stuff, you know, cause it's not, sometimes, you know, it's like, what do you send your conversation around? And again, when you have something with you and you want to talk about it, it's, it's easier to talk to people, you know, when you have something physical in your hand to talk about or to show. Yeah. So, um, so how did you even find punk and hardcore? Cause like you said, you're kind of a uh, introverted person. Yeah. What was the gateway? Um, again, the the dudes in cave and um adam mcgrath and steve brodsky we went to school together um and they kind of introduced me to the whole hardcore scene Mm -hmm. and it kind of it was funny because it kind of uh i think before that before that i was like you know into more like um grunge spinoff stuff like sub pop stuff Mm -hmm. and then even before that I was into like hair metal, you know what I mean? So it's like, <laughs> it's just diving, the layers go, you know, down to more to core things from <laughs> being so far removed. And then you just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into this vortex. Well, at least from a style perspective, you've done a complete 360 yeah, and you've so, gone back to the hair metal. So <laughs> this is true. Hats off to you, my friend. Um, all right. So you get into, you get into the hardcore scene, uh, via people around you and the guys in cave in and you start going to shows, but you're still that introverted kid. How did you break out of that? Was it strictly through uh, photography or did, did you just kind of get to know people and then you became part of the community? Yeah, you get to know people, you get to know music, but again, my, my vehicle was the the pictures, bringing the pictures from the previous show to the next show and, you know, or just going up to bands. I don't know that came to town the next time they came around. I was like, here, here's some pictures from the last time you were playing here. Yeah. yeah I, that's how I felt that you and I met back yeah. in the day. Yeah. It's interesting though. Cause you were basically geared the way that you, you kind of immersed yourself in the community was being of service to the community. And for anyone who, who doesn't know about punk or hardcore, uh, a lot of punk, punk and hardcore is like participation based. It's like playing in a band, putting on shows, right. doing zines, doing photography, doing video. Um, for example, Sonny, who was on here before from Hate Five Six, uh, um, uh, does that as well. And the whole idea is that to be a part of the punk scene, it's not like you have to like be a contributor, but there is a heavy sense of like many people in the punk and hardcore scene are contributors and don't very few people make like real actual money off of this, including you in terms of photography. This isn't something that you've been drawing money from, right? No. And and that's the, that's the thing. Again, I try and keep that separate, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for good reason, because again, it, it's a freedom thing to me where um, if I don't, charging but there's no expectations so it's a like it or not kind of situation like 
if you like what I do, here you go. If you don't, then you you have no uh, recourse against me because you're not paying for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a it's kind of a double edged thing, and it, and I'd much rather barter and trade with people than um, have physical money involved in any of it. Yeah. Uh, again, as long as I've known you, it's always just been like, oh, can I get a copy of that record or can I get that shirt or that flyer that you put my photo right. on? I, as far as I know, I've only ever just like hooked you up with a one copy of the thing that your photo showed yep. up on. Is that right? Yep. That's all I need. A lot. <laughs> you must have a lot of stuff at your house. I do have a lot of stuff. And I have definitely. Um, <laughs> that's why I said, like, it's so funny because, uh, you know, there was a period where you know, people would even just like, they felt like they needed to give me something. So they'd be like, Oh, take a shirt. Even if, you know, it didn't have my picture on it. They're just like, take this shirt, take this, that. And now I'm less like, when people say that, I'm like, now nah, I'm good. Cause I just have <laughs> too much stuff. <laughs> and uh, you know, like it takes a certain kind of person who can be honest and be like, nah, I'm good. Because like, you know, it feel bad. Cause it's like, you don't want to sound, feel like you're being negative towards the person, but it's like, dude, the last thing I need is another band t-shirt and I'm not saying anything negative against your band or maybe actually I'm not going to wear it and I don't want to waste your money. But it's like such a, it takes a little bit of chutzpah to be able to be like, no thanks. Cause you know, people are like, oh, okay. Even though you're actually saving them money, it's like a right. weird punk thing. Well, let's go back to it. Um, but why the drive to be a part of the community, man? Because you are, and, and, and I mean, this is a high compliment. You have consistently been to me someone who's like really down for the hardcore community. Like you have truly been a participant, a contributor and a leader in the punk scene without being like a quote unquote, like I'm getting behind the steering wheel leader. You've just led by example by just being a really decent person that's a part of the scene so why that desire to contribute to the community um well i would say my, my parents didn't divorce when i was younger so it's pretty much been my community because that you know my mother would come home late you know single mother kind of thing come home late you know so i'd be on my own most of the time so it was about maybe just establishing that that place where I could go, you know, you know, not, I mean, I know like we were talking before that, uh, you know, there's so many things that, you know, society has that we think is so different, but, you know, let's be honest, the punk hardcore thing, scene is no different other than what your, you know, your values are than a church going to a church so again this just gives you a regular thing where you can meet up with the same people discuss some things that you're interested in and have fun yeah totally man it, it it's an interesting comparison you made there and like i think a lot of people would be like oh how dare he but i i think it's like a it's a relatable thing where it's like being a part of something and being within grouped in something is important and that being within group of something that has some kind of belief system matters right. and whether that belief system is like a straight edge or, or whatever, whatever it is, it's that people being within group and, and having like a unified purpose and idea and kind of system of how things go. I think it's like one of the most important things for people and for better, or for worse, punk has certainly been that for me. And I know it's been that for you as well, but why the drive to contribute? Like, cause you can just be a bystander. Why do you actually, why have you been a contributor? I mean, uh, I don't know. I feel like that was just part of 
being in that group, you know what I mean? Like, again, much like a church, right? Like, there are some people who just come there and sit in there, but a lot of them are more active contributors. And if you want to see something grow, you got to, and you really invest yourself in it, you know, you're not just going once a year, you know, you got to, you got to put in the work, especially if you want it to reflect the ideals that you hold, you know, if you want it, if you really want it to reflect, you know, how you feel, then you got to contribute to it. And that's, that's probably the best way of putting it, creating to that diversified, you know, ideas. Yeah. So starting off, you're out there, you're doing, you know, you, you join the scene or you become part of the scene, you get the lay of the land. Then you just decide one day I'm going to bring a camera to a show. Right. First four years, you're taking photos, you're bringing them in. But at one point, people start using your photos for magazines and for layouts and things start to change. So when things started to change, were you able to um, do things on a different platform, on a different level? Like how did things change for you around the process of like taking photos and like being involved in the scene? Or did it relatively stay the same after that tipping point? I mean, I think it's stayed the same again. I, I've just been able to, you know, get new equipment every once in a while, you know, it's like, Oh, I'll get this and then I'll get this. And then you become more interested in, in the different things you can do and the different tools. So, um, you know, you, you acquire stuff over time, much like t-shirts. Like <laughs> it's, it's just, it's funny to think about cause I, I was actually giving Sonny a hard time recently because he's, he acquired so much stuff during the pandemic. I'm like, oh, you're hitting that age where you just like get too much stuff or, you know, guitarists, you know, they, they're they in a punk band for most of their life and they have like one pedal, but then like they reach a certain age and now they have like a full pedal board and you're just like, oh, you're just trying to like find the angle, find the different variety. Because after a while, you know, of doing something without kind of growing, you, you, you're like, oh, I need to kind of interject some extra things in here in order to to spice up your own interest in it. Yeah. Is that what you're doing, Patrick? That's exactly what I'm doing. Patrick. <laughs> Patrick is, uh, for everyone, anyone listening, Patrick plays in an incredible band called Chain Whip and also has a, a solo project, which has turned into a band now called Pack Rat. He's a drummer primarily, but now that he's like, oh, he's like singer, guitar player guy, he's got more gear than anybody. I, I like to keep it simple. I have uh, I have several guitars, a guitar head that I barely know how to use, and a tuning pedal, and that is uh, that is it. And I am not a good guitar player, but I'm fine. <laughs> All right. Again, being a very community based person, though, and this is something that's always stood out to me is that you've always played a little bit of a mentor role for younger people coming up, especially other creative people in the scene who are like out taking photos. So like, what's your first recollection of like younger people starting to take photos and coming to you for advice or kind of like kind of developing a relationship with you? Oh, geez. I can't remember the year per se, but, um, I mean, this happens a lot now and it's, it's funny. My, my advice is usually the same. It's like, it's usually like, yeah, just, you know, give a, find out what works for you. You know what I mean? That's usually my, my advice, you know, like find out what works for you. Um, again, people are always like, Oh, I don't want to get in your way. You know, they're this, I'm like, don't worry about it. I have enough pictures of all these bands that 
if you want to stand in front of me and take some shots, go ahead because I've been used to working around people um, for years and years and years. And I'll, if I can't have that angle, I'll find a different angle. But it's funny you say that, man, because a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people would be like, hey, I've been here for years. I get the best spot. You get the secondary spot. You got to work your way up. Why do you have the attitude of like, yeah, of course, get in front and do it? Uh, Because you have to, you can't gatekeep people in, you know, you can't, you can't, um, you can't hold that against people. I mean, every, this is the thing that I think everybody, um, forgets is that everybody's a young kid at once like somebody gave me the opportunity right somebody somebody didn't stand in front of me and say now you sit in the back somebody was welcoming enough to me so again why would I not pass that down to everybody else that you know I come in contact with yeah but a lot of people would say that and not do that. And that's something I wanted to ask you about like punk and hardcore. Cause again, you, you being like a very community minded guy, very, um, very ethical person. Um, punk and hardcore is an interesting thing. Cause like there's like the aspirational ideals that we talk about in our songs and our zines and all that kind of stuff. But on the flip side, there's this like pretty heavy reflection of the rest of the world. There's all sorts of like really, really shitty stuff that happens in punk and hardcore that like, I think punk and hardcore is, typically very comfortable pointing out the flaws and like, let's say the business world and like, Oh, you know, it needs to be like this and be like that. And then you're like, we're going to a show and like, look at all this crazy shit that goes on or all these unspoken things or all of like the negative stuff. So one of the things that stands out though, is like you are a super community minded person and um, just like an ethical, just a good, good guy. You've been the person in the room who's like, Hey, I just want to be a contributor. You picked up a camera you learned your way into doing it. And of course, it's like before Instagram or even like digital photography, you really earned your way up and you've never let that be a chip on your shoulder. Uh, humble, like welcoming of other people. So I know the punk and hardcore scene that that you aspire to be a part of is one that reflects those values. And I also, I think we can pretty comfortably say that like playing punk and hardcore can be weird because like we have all of these things about how we think punk and hardcore, how we talk about punk and hardcore. But the reality can actually pretty accurately reflect what goes on in the rest of the world, like some of the good stuff, but a lot of the shitty stuff as well. So like, how do you rationalize that to yourself about having this kind of aspirational scene that is all about this community mindset while also reflecting that like most of the really ill stuff that happens in the world totally happens in our scene. And in some cases, it happens a little bit worse here than in other places. Yeah, I mean... It, within the scene, it's, it's again, I think I, I want a diverse scene. I, I, I don't want a, a like-minded thing. Like I'm going to act how I, how I want it to be, but I don't expect it to bow down to exactly how, I, you know, how I want it to be because what what's the fun in that? I mean, there's, there's a thing to be said for getting different experiences and different points of view. And again, most people are young in the scene. And again, if we don't give people a chance to mess up or, you know, learn their way around and automatically want to shut them out for something they've done, then I, I think we're kind of failing as a, as a growth thing. But it, like, I understand what you're talking about. Sometimes it, 
we we need to be more mentors to to the younger people because again sometimes stuff develops in it they're not learning and there becomes a bad habit and then it turns into an awful thing before you know it you know yeah and and as i speak from this like i you know get anyone from the punk and hardcore scene like you know i, I i'm not finger waggling at this like you know like within my own my own friend group and within our own crew of people we've had you know like some real challenges with this stuff and we've had our own kind of moment of really having to confront that within our with our own friend group so it's a it's a question that's largely unanswered where it's like you know i'm a guy in my like late 40s now i love punk i love hardcore i love the music i love the ideas and i also recognize the same like beautiful things about people but the same awful things about people are deeply represented in our scene and I don't think people should be running around trying to like, quote unquote, save the scene. Like, I think we all have better things to do with our lives, like more, more energy yes. that we could be put into other things. I do think it's interesting though, that as we're adults and we move forward, we spend so much, we spent so much time immersed in a scene that critiques the outside world. So strongly <laughs> eviscerates the outside world, especially I would say like the corporate world, but also would, would maybe fail to hold itself to that same level of expectation. Yeah, no finger waggling here. Like I struggle with it on, on my own. You being like a long time professional because you've been in the professional world for a long time. I'm just interested to see like the stuff that you see in, in your professional job versus the stuff that you see in the punk world. Um, what level of like relative sameness would you say that you experience in terms of like some of the challenges that it can happen in a workplace versus in a scene? I mean, you're going to get the same, you know, somebody coming into the punk scene is like somebody, you know, coming into the job for their first time. Again, they're going to mess up. They're going to, they're going to do these things. And some people grow and, but I focus more on the people that, that do grow. You know what I mean? That some people don't, some people do. And I, and I tend to, I just tend to focus my thing on the people that are really growing in that positive direction. Like I've seen some, in the punk and hardcore scene, I've seen some people that my first impression of them for years was like, this person is awful. Like, you know, I've marked them as awful, but then I've seen them grow and become like really great leaders and, and really turn their life around. And that's, that's what always, again, lets me, gives me hope and gives, you know, allows for my acceptance of some stuff that on the surface in the beginning doesn't look cool because I have, I always try to think the best in people that they can turn themselves around. And that, that same thing is applied to work, you know, like, you know, I'm trying to mentor people and I'm like, Oh, this person's not getting it. They're not getting it. And sometimes they never get it and they don't care to grow up with. I've had infinite amount of more people that have, you know, thanked me because I've helped them grow in an exponential level. And that's why I have like my contacts in the punk and hardcore world are equally on the, the architecture world because, mm. because I haven't, I've not ignored people and I've helped them grow when they needed to grow. So if you were to say like helping people grow would and like be either like, within the professional world um, or within like, you know, a community like punk and hardcore, what are some of the things that are essential elements to help people get there? I mean, 
Well, first of all, they have to do the work, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you can't do the work for them. That's one thing, you know. Mm-hmm. People think they can control people and, and get them to do the work. They have to put in the, the work to do those things. Um, my thing is, you know, if somebody wants to learn something, I'm open to show them how to learn it or, or teach them the skills needed to get to that next level. Or if I see somebody who's stuck and probably has more potential than they even know is to put them in a position where they're challenged more so that they can realize their potential. Yeah. So one of the things I, I share about change uh, in my work as a coach and also when I was working as a therapist, um, the perception about change usually follows about a year afterwards. So for example, if someone could make a change and like could change let's say whatever behaviors they have, they change it and they're consistent in that change 70% of the time or 80% of the time. If they're consistent enough for a long enough period, people are going to recognize that change, but it usually takes around a year. So eight months to a year for, before people are like really get it. And I'm going to give you an example. So if you and I were working together and someone was always showing up late and then you and I said to them, okay, um, listen, your job's on the line at this point. You can't keep showing up late. So you got to change that behavior. And they're like, okay, no problem. And then three months later, they showed up late one time. Before they came in the door, you and I would probably be thinking, oh, here we are going back to old behaviors. We're not thinking, oh gosh, something must have happened to them. Are they okay? We're like, nah, here we go. Like old behaviors. But let's say they didn't, they weren't late in three months. Let's say it was five months. Then maybe at five months, they show up late and we're like, huh, it's been a long time since I've been late, but it's probably just backsliding. But maybe we'd be a little bit more willing to think for a second, like, oh, you know, maybe it was something else. Right. But, but let's just say they weren't late at all until eight months. We're no longer going to, ah, this is backsliding. We're like, huh, that's unusual for them. Like, in fact, I know they've taken this really seriously. I hope they're okay. There's something magical that happens around that eight month. And you could say between like maybe six to eight months where people start, really recognizing like that perception, that perception shifts about someone. And by a year, by 12 months, they're, they're viewed just in a different way. But like for change, um, I love what you're saying is like, people have to do the work, you know, you got to be there to guide them, support them, but they got to, they got to do the work. But I'd say the flip side, the, the work that we can do is people is like, allow our perception to shift along with how people are changing. And maybe instead of be, uh, us instantly being like, ah, it's just backsliding instead be like, huh? Okay. I wonder what's really going on. It could be backsliding, but it could be a bunch of other things. How does that land with you? Yeah. I mean, well, it's so funny you mentioned that because even I would say like the early mid part of my career, I did that to myself Hmm. where I was like, I didn't think I was growing. I, I didn't think I was changing, getting the, and, and, I would have bosses that'd be like, no, you, I don't think you're realizing all these things are changing here. And you've made these changes to all these people and all this, but, but I didn't feel that myself. I didn't, I didn't feel that I was doing that, but from an outsider's perspective, they thought I was implementing so many changes that they were like, I would get, why are you complaining about change? You've changed all these things. And I couldn't, I couldn't see that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see that long-term aspect of the things that I had changed. 
So why do you think that was? Were you just being too hard on yourself or did you not have like a bigger vision? I don't know. I mean, I, I would, because I don't know. Cause again, I think it goes back to what you're saying when you, I wasn't looking at change as a, a longer term thing. I was looking at it as well in three months, I should be here. And in another three months, I should be here. And in another three months, I should be here. Yeah. 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 Hell yeah. I, I see what you're saying. And like, Something that I'd say for people consider around change, um, which is like I'm in the business of whether I was being a therapist or the work that I do now, it's like about helping people achieve new things like businesses, achieve new things, individuals, teams, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I always kind of laugh when companies come to me, they come to me about one or two things or, or in our first conversation, one or two things always almost always shows up. It's like, Aram, we're in a time of change. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, we're always in a time of change today. Right. It's not even exactly. when it's going to be raining. We're always in a time of change and change could be like it can happen at its own pace or you can take some step, steps to mold that change. So sometimes you just surf along with the change that's already happening and other times you're, you're there to like mold it based on what you need to have happen. But the other thing people talk to me a lot about is like, oh, Ram, you know, our workplace is in silos. Yeah, of course. You know, like I've got a fence around my yard. And then my neighbor has a fence around the yard. Those are silos. We just naturally as human beings, we create structures and patterns and hierarchies and family units and crews and groups. And a silo in and of itself isn't a bad thing at all. Like I'm not in like every band. I'm in my band. I don't work for every company. I work for my company. And a silo can help people identify their, um, their people, their space, their work, their, their way of doing things. And being in a silo isn't bad. It's about whether or not those worlds are the, the walls of your silo are permeable. Like I can see my neighbor's house. My neighbor can see me. We can talk over our fence. We can like chat and agree to do things. I don't have a, a, I don't have a fence that's like, you know, a mile high and like, you know, like I don't ever let anyone in my yard. And that idea about like change and also about, uh, about silos, these things aren't bad. They shouldn't be scary things. They only become scary if we allow them to be toxic. And if we aren't talking, if we aren't communicating, and if we're like trying to create forced results, which takes me over to, I want to talk to you about your professional career. But before we go into that, do you want to talk about anything we just hit, hit on? Um, well, again, I would say in the past five years, I so I used to silo hardcore and punk in my work life very very siloed like nobody would nobody knew like again if i went to a show everybody just assumes that uh i do photography as a career like that that's their assumption because i i don't tell them otherwise you know and and when i'm at work doing architecture stuff nobody knows that i you know go off and do these things on the weekends or whatever on my vacation time but i would say like about five or six years ago that kind of i let them I finally let them kind of intermingle and that's, it wasn't a detriment. I would say that's when I, I kind of opened up broadly to both sides. And again, using tools from each side that I've learned in order to make each one of these experiences better. Heck yeah. It's funny you say that, man. I didn't even know. And I've known you forever. I had no idea that you were an architect until Evan from Mindset told me. Yeah. And Evan credits you. He speaks, obviously, I know you and Evan are, are 
longtime friends, but he speaks so highly of you and, and the influence you've had on him. And when he told me, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe I've known Todd for so long. And I didn't know what he did professionally. So what caused you to make this change about five years ago is where you started, we started having less, like you made those, the, the, um, silos between the two more permeable, like you could have some crossover, like what led to that change? Was it natural or was it intentional? Um, I think it just, it got too hard to kind of juggle the different silos at some point where it was just like, you know, to, you know, come into work and your voice is shot and people are like, what's this all about? Are you sick? You should be going home. And you're just like, ah, oh, no, that's just, just blowing on my voice. No big deal. You know what I mean? Like, and then, then starting to find random people that you would never think were involved in punk and hardcore in your own workspace mm-hmm. that don't currently go, but had roots in it. And it was just like, you know, I have like one of my bosses come up to me and like, cause I was like, she's like, Oh, what do you listen to? And I forget what it was at the time, but she's like, Oh yeah, I've seen minor thread a bunch of times. I'm like, like total, like you wouldn't know tattoos, no nothing, you know, mm-hmm. nothing outside of anything you would attribute to punk hardcore. And the person's like, yeah, I've seen, yeah, no big deal. I've seen them a bunch how, of times. How dare you lady? Yeah. <laughs> how could <laughs> you? Um, Okay, man. And, you know, before we go into your professional career, uh, talk to us about your band. Oh, my band that I did? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and from uh, 2012 to 2014? Um, yeah, I, I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about Todd's World War after that. Oh, uh, Todd's War after that. That's that's a... So, I did Test of Time from 2012 to 2014, and it was great. Again, um got to say a lot of things I wanted to say over, you know, so that's to me, that's like taking the contribution to another level where, and I think that's again, where everything started to break and and meld together, you know, professional and the hardcore world. Cause it's like, I see all this stuff and you know, everybody, I think anybody who's involved in punk and hardcore eventually just says, Hey, I want to say, I, I want to add my opinion to this. You know? Dude, well, like when you went into a band, I think everyone was like, hell yeah, like Todd's doing a band now. But as an introverted guy and, and, and you know, again, we've known each other for a while, but I've also known you a little bit more on the shy side. What caught like what was the like, I'm going to do this now? I just had a bunch of people. We were talking one day and we were just like, yeah, let's just do this. We have some ideas and we have some things and let's just go ahead and, and do it. And again, it was just supposed to be a very kind of casual thing. I I, I just figured we'd do a demo and, and play like, you know, a couple times in a year, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Just as a, yeah, I had these ideas in my head and I just wanted to get them out on, on paper and do that. Yeah. And then it, and then it just got like a lot. <laughs> it got yeah, like, yeah. I'm using all my vacation time doing this, you know, all, you know, all this time doing that, uh, um, recording stuff i'm sure you can relate is a nightmare absolute nightmare hate it <laughs> I, I absolutely I, hate I, it i hate recording hate stuff um, so so bad man yeah all right um, but i'm i'm gonna bring something up and i don't, i'm not like i'm not trying to bum you up but like so it doesn't surprise me it went quick because i know charles charles is like a big thinker he moves fast he likes to he likes to get stuff out there yeah. 
Um, so you pushed out a ton of releases super fast, like really, yeah. really fast. And then boom, band ends. And then you do Tard's War, which felt a little pointed. What do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, again, it all, it started out very humble with Test of Time. And it, it like, again, like I didn't expect it. And like you said, Charles is very pushy and like wants to do a ton of things. And it just like got out of control where like it was like, well, you need to choose between um, playing, doing this band where you make no money, as you know, <laughs> you got to, it's like Spotify of real life where, you know, you got <laughs> to be doing a lot to get any kind of money or anything. To, the Spotify of real life. <laughs> to, put my, beautiful quote. <laughs> to, to put my career on the back burner to oh. do that. Um it just it wasn't meshing anymore you know yeah and at the same time um my dad uh had a remission of cancer and it was just like all right all right and he still pushed and pushed and pushed and the todd's war thing was a response to that pushing yeah yeah um and uh, so i'm just gonna give it you know i know charles Charles, I totally respect your work ethic. I think it's an interesting story, though, for sure, because like you are literally like one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Super chill. And when the Todd's War thing happened, I was like, "That's a side of uh, that's a side of Todd I've never seen before." And I think it's cool. Like, and right. I think it's cool. And and people, you know, they play. I, I've beefed with many a person that I play in a band with, or other other people. It's a creative. The creative effort brings in brings in the best and the worst of people uh, all the time. So uh, thank right. you for sharing that because I know it's maybe a bit uncomfortable, but you know Charles, not at all intended as a diss on my end because I think uh, I think you're uh, you know a cool cat. You do lots of good stuff. Yeah, I mean it's just again, I think everybody comes to this point when they're in a band. You know, again, this was just hyper accelerated. It's like. You know, what do you, we, I often talked about this with people in the sense, like, you know, you, you talk about bands like Code Orange and whatever, you know, it's like, well, they're not the same band as they're, yeah, but they're trying to do this as a career. So there's no, mm -hmm. there's no way for the, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't be like, not uh, like I just told my friend, not everybody can be negative approach. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like nobody can, not everybody can just grind it for their entirety of their career you know they some people have if they want to stay in it they want to have a farther reach yeah and like i think code orange is an, an interesting example especially if we put it against test of time because test of time was just like such a huge burst of like putting out tons of stuff and doing tons of stuff and then ended kind of yeah. sharply which is like a lot of hardcore bands right and punk bands um, although yours was like quite, quite a burst very quickly, but then you've got a band like code orange, who's like cultivating a career over time and like being thoughtful about how they do it. And you get the sense of like, probably, and I don't know any of them, so I don't want to speak for them, but my sense of watching them has been like, you start young, you're doing a band and you're just doing a band, you see what happens. But at some point they're like, no, this is what we want to do. And we're actually good enough that we can do it. And they, they start becoming more intentional about what they're doing. And you can see that, like, how they engage with the audience, how they put themselves out there has become quite a bit more thought out, like, more strategic. And good for them. I think that's, like, a, 
it's cool to be able to see a band that comes from the community that can then go beyond the community, but keep its roots within it. So good right. for them. And I, th- I think you see the same for like Turnstile. Well, same yeah, for like, that's you know, Turnstile, Angel right? Like, like that. Turnstile, you know, again, everybody starts out emulating something, right? Like something in the punk and hardcore, you know, you're New York style or Bay Area style or something. But yeah, it, it, there are those like magical points where like, like, again, that, that most recent turnstile record, you're like, well, this isn't really pop, but it's not really punk and hardcore. It, it kind of created their own thing out there, because but it doesn't. It could live in both spaces, mm-hmm. and that's 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 the rarity of stuff yeah. that can live in both those spaces. Well, it's like, and, and I don't know if this is too much of a stretch, but it's like, although Bad Brains is like very aggressive band, like Bad Brains could live in any space. Right. Beastie Boys could live in almost any space. Like really more kind of like iconic stuff can live in, in any space, but it takes a lot of guts to get there. It's the same kind of guts that I think are involved in like a kid picking up a camera and doesn't know how to do it and then bringing those photos to a show. It's the willingness to put yourself out there in a way that is different than what everyone around you is doing. And maybe some people are doing something similar, but you're the one who's doing it. Right. I, I think it comes from the same place and like, you know, Code Orange or Turnstile or Angel Dust or, or any bands like that. Like I still view them all as being like coming from the scene and like, I don't know if they'd be comfortable with it, but referring to them as hardcore bands that have gone on to do different things. Um, let's talk about your professional career though. Sure. So, so when did you become an architect? Like what year was that? 2009. Okay. So what was that's the when draw? I, that's when I officially became. So anybody who knows anything about the architecture world. So I'm pretty much speaking to Evan, maybe like one other person, but you know, um, actually Patrick across from me is very well versed in, in it. Right. You're talking about your ass, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you're just talking to Evan right now. So you need a certain amount of training hours. And then you have to take all these exams. So it's it's no different than being a doctor or a lawyer. You have to mm-hmm. get your experience and then you have to take these exams and then you can be a registered architect. So you don't, mm-hmm. it's not like you graduate and you're automatically an architect. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you did do that, you would, you could, in Massachusetts at least, you could, I've seen it, you can get legally held accountable for calling yourself an architect when you're not officially registered so oh wow you when you get out of school you're just a designer and until you get your architectural registration that's only when you can call yourself an architect all right so what led you down this path initially like how did you even get the idea of doing this so it's a it's a funny story with that because i it's just something that i was good at and i never I never really noticed it until like, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to, when I went from high school, I was like, yeah, I'll just go to, for this because this is what I was interested in. I didn't have any mentors well, you or anything. When you said you were good at it, good at what, what were you good at and how did you discover it? Um, good at spatial. I mean, uh, this is where you might make a time with photography is a, and I think actually this is why things enhance each other is both these skills enhance each other is it's, it's all about form and composition, you know, like, um, 
No, I, no, I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you didn't tell me. I, right. You're speaking a language so, I don't speak. Again, what's what's pleasing to the eye? You know, sometimes you can get two people taking pictures right next to each other, but you know, X band member is over here, and X member over here, and the other one, they're in a different order. So one. Mm-hmm is more pleasing because of the moment it was caught in as opposed to the other one, even though they're both in the same spot. And so that's where like the composition of making something that captures that feeling of that moment. And that that's how it relates to architecture. Cause I mean, you, I mean, you can go down the street and you can, you can know what stuff you like, right. The houses you like, and then the ones that you're like, this is junk, you know, cause there's a, certain dimensional proportion to that that makes it pleasing and comforting to you as opposed to um something that's ramshackled together you are like it elicits that emotion in you yeah um all right so you noticed that you were good at it and then how did you get into it you said you didn't have any mentors anyone that led you down there yeah just I guess that was just the thing I got interested in and and I was good at it and I didn't have any other interests at that time. I I mean, at that point in high school, I mean, again, the photography thing was just, that was just starting up with, um, you know, the point and shoot and I didn't take any classes that it was just, I liked capturing these forms and compositions on this medium and I didn't see the I didn't see the bridge to that being a career, um, but this had a career, you know, lineage to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where did you start out when you finished? Like when you became like a designer, where did you start out? Um, I started out in so this was uh, two thousand two, which was another great economic time to be working in. And I lived north of Boston, and I worked south of Boston. Oh. So, and for anyone who is not well versed, traffic in Boston is an absolute yeah. nightmare. Absolute nightmare. So I'd spend two to three hours a day in my car, commuting back and forth, and um, it literally there were times where I was. I got to listen to a lot. The good part was I got to listen to a lot of good music <laughs> because I would be in the car for a long time. So that's a good time to listen to music. Um, the bad thing is I would subconsciously just drive. Like there were times where I would drive and three quarters of the, of the ride. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be paying attention at all. I'd be an autopilot. And you'd, you'd have that moment where you're like, Whoa, I wasn't paying attention at all. Or, you drive past your exit and you go, and there's my exit that I'm supposed to be getting off and I'm driving right by it because you're just subconsciously doing it. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and then I just had to move because I was literally, my cycle was get up, travel to work, go to work, travel back to work, go to bed. Like it was literally like an endless loop where there was no free time in between. Um, so you get in that first job, where did punk and hardcore help you 
uh, in the professional world? Or what, what are some of the things that you learned from punk and hardcore that you brought into the, into the professional world that benefited your career? Um, I would say, again, in Troy, everybody says this, the DIY, do yourself, you know what I mean? Willingness to do anything and anything to get the job done. Like the willingness to whatever way we're going to make it to this town and we're going to see this show, we're going to go, you know, we're going to, I don't care. We're going to screen. We're going to learn how to screen print because we can't afford to do the regular screen printing. You know, that's all that, that mentality works very well and is very highly valued in the professional world for people who just take the bull by the horns and say, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to do it. Um, anything that came from punk and hardcore that harmed your career at all that, that you had to like kind of realize like, Oh wait, the real world doesn't work like this. Um, anything that would harm me. Um, other than taking time away, <laughs> um, you know, or the DIY thing can sometimes work against you as well. I would say that, you know, because so? sometimes you want to go, go, go. And people are like, no, no, no. <laughs> you you have to learn these things before you can go, go, go on some of these things. You, Especially I, in architecture where you deal with public safety and stuff like that. You, you can't just go, go, go on some things. So yeah, sometimes you can't be like, I'll, I'll figure it out. Like you right, can't do that. No, no. Because you're right, gonna, so, Oh, go ahead. You're, you're messing with somebody's life, you know, here <laughs> again. The reason you have to be registered to be an architect is because you're in charge of the safety of the public. So you can't create a condition that's going to go against that. So seven years as a designer, is that right? 2002 to 2009? Yep. Um, in that time, were you in school the whole time to become an architect? Or is it something that you kind of got around to after a number of years as doing, after doing design? What do you mean for taking tests or... Yeah, taking tests and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I think they've changed the requirements now, but you needed to at least have five years before you could start taking the tests. And then, oh, wow. And then there's nine tests. So, so it's like you go to school, then you become a designer, then you have to be a designer for like five years, then you can take tests. So you don't need to be in school after that. It's just that you have to get enough field experience before you can take Correct. The um, that's a long time, man. Yeah. Do a lot of people uh, bow out and just say, I'm going to stay a designer? Or do most people go for it? Um, a lot of people bow out. And they've actually changed the requirements now. Now you don't have to wait that long um, because they were running out of architects. Because, oh, it's, wow. because they weren't getting enough backfill of the people retiring with the people coming in because of that arduous process. Yeah. So, uh, what, what have they changed the requirements to now? Um, you still have to do them, but you, you can start taking tests right after you get out of school. Okay. Okay. So, um, you become an architect and then what, what happens next in your career? Then I start changing jobs every single two years. <laughs> and and how, how come, was it just for different opportunities or uh, was it that you didn't like some of the places you worked or was it a mix of both? It's a mix of both. So I would say first, uh, the architecture industry is not good at promoting you and compensating you within your profession well within 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 your if you're working at a firm they're not good at raising people up 
They're getting better at it now because they lose people now because now it's now it's probably like the hottest time ever to be an architect because the we every recession we lose a lot of the workforce a lot of the workforce is forget it I'm never coming back here because yeah. when the when we have recessions that's building industry and that usually those are usually big layoffs because of nobody's designing, you know, nobody's building anything. Nobody, nothing's getting designed. All so right. we lose a lot of people during those times. So there's, it's created big gaps in experience mm-hmm. in the architecture field. Mm-hmm. So um, right now, you know, if somebody's not paying you your market value, there's, if you're not getting paid at your market value where you work, if you put yourself out on the free market, you're going to get paid your value. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long have you been in your current role? My current role? I just yeah. took this job at the beginning of this year. Heck yeah. And how's it been so far? It's good. So in any of your uh, jobs, have you had like direct leadership, like reports that you've had to like uh, direct and, and raise up or has it all been indirect leadership? Um, I think the, my past two jobs have been direct leadership. The other ones have been partials. Yeah, kind of like influence dotted lines, that kind of stuff. Right. But now, so, now I, I get to, the good part about this job and the, the way they, they – um, the reason they wanted me was because they, I'm literally right now building an architecture department from the ground up. Oh yeah. Have you ever done that before? No. Um, so what have you learned as you're doing this? Like what are some of your key takeaways as you're doing this endeavor and building something from the ground up like this? Um, there's going to be a lot of silos and you have to, come back to them all mm-hmm. is checking in with all the silos because again, this it's uh, all these things we talked about before have taught me patience in order to let the process happen. Because mm-hmm. if you try and try and do all these things all at once, not only will it fail, but you'll, you'll burn yourself to the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's really incrementally, filling each of the silos you know big farm lots of silos to fill and you just got to keep incrementally filling them up so there's that patience what about like how do you find and then retain talent like because i going ground up means you got to like find people and keep people so how are you doing that we haven't got to that point yet (laughs) so you're still building the framework we're still building the framework at this point um but talent you know again they're they're the company they were very picky about who they wanted to to have and again they're they're going on a a vibe more than a you know you got to check all the boxes but then then it's really we're not going to bring somebody who doesn't have the the attitude that we want in here Mm -hmm. can i can i share two bits of thinking around hiring and retaining Sure. Uh, the first is I, there's a way that I think people view who they want to work with and how long they want to stay. And it's like a ranked order. 
uh, from most important to least important. And it's going to sound weird because the one I end with is the one that people tend to talk, talk about the most. Um, I think the, the biggest indicator of where people want to work and whether or not they stay is their relationship with their boss. That's like the number one indicator of people coming to work somewhere and then staying there. And so people want like come and work for people, for people that they've heard of, they respect, that they're inspired by, or they meet in an interview and they're like, hell yeah, I want to work with that person. And when I say like your boss, I don't mean like like them like a buddy, but I mean like, is your boss a skilled leader? Are they stretching you? Are they teaching you? Are they invested in you? Um, do they give you uh, assignments and things to that give you the spotlight that that you deserve? Do they res do they show you respect and push you hard, like push you really, really hard, but do it in a way that like lights you up in a positive way? And when I, again, when I say positive, I don't mean like you're super happy, but it's like it's getting the desired result. And so like some people have bosses that are hard, but like a hard boss is kind of what you're looking for and what you need. Like I've had that experience. Other yeah. people have bosses who aren't hard and that's, that's what they like and then what they need. So it's someone's relationship with their boss, I believe is the number one indicator of where people work and whether or not they stay. Uh, the second one is, is feeling within group. Um, you know, if you think about hardcore, like people filtering in and out, someone comes for like, you know, we use that buried alive song, six month face, right? Someone comes in for a while, then they're gone. <laughs> and especially hardcore and punk where it's like such a like sense of like community, um, uh, so that's the, the goal or the ideal, um, being within group, but I don't necessarily mean liking the people that you work with, not that they're like buddy, buddy, or you're like, it's a family, like not that, yeah. but more so like, do the people around you enable you to do your best work and do you enable them to do their best work? So do you help clear the path for each other? Do you inspire different kind of thinking? Do you push each other in a good way? Can you give each other effective feedback? Um, by working with these people, can you reach and do things that you couldn't do before and that you couldn't do without them? So as a working group, as like is is the as the sum of the whole greater than each of its parts. That's why people stay and like they're within a group. Um, the third thing is whether or not people like their work. And I know that sounds weird that it would be like that far down, ranked down, but you can see people who actually don't effectively don't essentially like what they do, but they're really love the people like they they love the the team they're a part of and they really like working for their boss people do all sorts of stuff that they're like nah i don't really care about what i do but i like how i do it the people i do it with right and the, the last thing that's an indicator of whether or not people work somewhere and especially whether or not they stay is their compensation and that's how much they get paid their benefits their vacation time their you know um even things like work-life balance any of those things that totally matters. But if you have the first three in luck, like if you really like working for your boss, you really like your team, you really like what you do, what you get paid is like definitely a moot point and, it, and it's an increasingly moot point. It becomes more and more important in people's minds if they don't like working for the boss, they don't like the team, they don't like what they do. And it doesn't mean that people shouldn't get paid well. Like, God damn it, pay people well. But when I see companies throw money at people, especially in a time like this where we have a super competitive job market, it's like throwing money and benefits might interest people in talking to you. But if you don't have a great leader, if you haven't invested in your leaders and put the right person in place, you might hook someone in, but they won't stay even if you throw money at them. So if, it, if we go by my work history, mm -hmm. um, I've never left because of money. Mm. Um, it's always been something else. And thankfully, again, my network has been so big that I've had most of my jobs since I started changing jobs on the regular every two years is mm. 
people who know me who say, come over here. Yeah. Come up. So again, there is a, a built-in relationship to most of these moves. Like um, the job previous to this one, I was actually working for a client and the client said, why don't you just come work for us? And that's how that started. You know, like they've all been like that. But again, I guess my my problem is I've never gotten so deep with any group that um, made me want to say, well, this is where I want to stay for the rest of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that I, leads, oh, go ahead. I start out with that aspiration, but again, sometimes you get like, uh, I would say the reason I left my previous job to this one was because my boss was kind of like, he was a good boss, but he, he didn't challenge me. He didn't, you know, he was just, he, he let me do whatever I wanted. And, and he was just like, yeah, that's good. You know, he like, you know, never gave me any constructive feedback or anything to help me grow. Just kind of, he's the, he's a good guy. And like I said, good guy, good job, good everything other than it just didn't challenge me. And I feel like the job I took was the reason I did that is because it's going to give me such, so much more of a challenge and an ability to create stuff where, so we're going, I went from a children's hospital, which is, an institution that's been around for 150 years to a company that's, you know, five years old. So again, here you, you can, you can, you can scratch and claw, right? <laughs> but you're only going to move an inch, you know, was that quoting go it alone right here? <laughs> Shout out to Mark Pop. Um, <laughs> but um, in this company, I'll, I'll be able to, I'll be able to move bigger things to create the next legacy of something. Hell yeah. And that's what like, interests me. See, like that to me is like money is such an interesting thing. And in like, in being in that space, like my most disliked boss was also the boss that like I worked for the longest. And it's like, I thought he was just such a clown, but he stretched like I was challenged. I learned new things. I actually personally dislike the guy immensely, but like I learned so much while I worked there and that sense of like being stretched and challenged and like, you know, you, you taking stuff on and it was a terrible culture too. It was just like, I was learning a lot. It was, it was interesting. Cause like I was learning a ton by being in this guy's orbit and I got paid a ton of money. So it was like those two things. I liked what I did. I didn't like my, I didn't like my boss as a person, but I liked what I was learning. And it's, set, it's what set me up to do my job now or to do the company now. Um, that idea of what you can learn from someone and, and also what you're able to do as a result of what you learned, that's so much more captivating than money. Can I share with you my second philosophy though around, uh, around hiring? Sure. Um, you got to hire for three things, uh, function, purpose, and vision. And so function is just simply like, what is a job description? Like, so what does an architect do? Basically it's like, well, we need this kind of person and their function is different than their purpose. So like people often hire for function. It's like, oh, well we need someone like for my company, we need a coach. Well, it's like, well, yeah, of course we need a coach. And it's easy to find someone based on function, just find whoever has the most work history and like, you know, maybe went to the best school, the most experience. But I think that gets you like the same results over and over again. And it also doesn't really get you someone who's likely to stay. 
more so I say like you hire dominantly for purpose where it's like, okay, we know we need the role, but if we're adding someone here, what's the purpose of adding that person? Like what different, what different result do we want to have rather than just someone filling a spot? I'll give you an example. So like if you have a band, a band's per or band's um, function is to play music. That's the na that's the nature of a band. It's like they're to play music. But if the purpose of that band is just all we want to do is create a party band and have fun with it. We just want to have fun with this band and get people dancing and get them to come and have fun for a night. Great. You start a cover band. The function is still the same. You're just playing covers, but you're pl the function is the is playing music. But the purpose is just a party band, just a fun band. We're a bar band. Great. You just learn covers. But if you're hey, well, we actually want to write records and like the function or the purpose of the band is to express ourselves creatively. Okay, well, if you want to express yourself creatively, the function is still playing music, but you're going to stack the deck differently because you're going to have songwriters. You're going to have a different caliber of musician. You're going to have people maybe with a lot of experience. Or if you're like, actually, we want to be like touring musicians. I want to make my living. That's the purpose of the band. Okay, the function is still playing music, but because the purpose is different, you're going to stack the deck differently. And you can hide the function of a role typically is the same. Like it can change a little bit based on the purpose, but the function is the function. The purpose is what are we trying to do with this role? What's the goal of this role? And the last is vision. Like I have a vision for my company. You have a vision for the thing you're building. The people who are your bosses have the vision for what they want out of the company. What I'm always interested in is the person that I'm interviewing or that we're hiring. Do they have a vision? I want to know. Yeah, sure. You can do the function of this. I know the purpose of this role. So I'm looking for a specific kind of person who can fill that purpose. But I also want to know what kind of vision. What do you think we could be? Where do you think we could go? And if you can hire someone who's got like function for me is kind of like the tertiary thing a little bit. Like I want someone who can do the job, of course, and especially for your industry. I know that matters. But like their purpose and making a strategic hire based on the purpose. And then also like, well, what's your vision? Like what can you see the big picture and tell it to me? Those three things I think are like really important when you're hiring. Yeah, so in this current job, that was the interesting part about the process. It was that um, they originally thought about me for a certain role, but the more we talked, and I was just thankful that they had multiple things that they kind of needed to, to do. The more we talked, they're like, you seem like you have the vision to do this and not this. So what, why don't we just do that? Yeah, <laughs> you know what and I mean. It was, a, it was a bigger and it was a bigger job. Yeah, hell yeah, man, dude, I love that. Um, all right, before we go into the next part, anything else you want to say about career, your job, anything like that? Thoughts on leadership? Let's move on to the next section. All right, so <laughs> we're heading now towards we're starting to getting close to wrapping up. I have three questions I want to ask you, and they are three extremely challenging questions. All right. Okay, question number one. If you think of crucial um, skills for leaders, something, things that you think are important, what's one skill that you know you're really good at? And, and by the way, it doesn't mean that you don't think you can improve in it, but like that, there's one skill that today you know you're really, really good at. And what's one that you know you need to work on and maybe you are working on it? Um. One skill that I think I, and again, didn't realize I was good at it until like five years ago, um, is reading people, hmm. being able to read people and know what they want and know how to take that 
information and convey it back to them in in an architectural manner is is something that I've become very skilled at being able to handle people and and to again know when I did a lot of project management knowing when somebody's getting upset over something and how to kind of talk that explain it to them in a manner they can understand is is a skill that I think I I didn't realize I was good at until I realized that people around me didn't have that a good skill with that and then I had it and that was really <laughs> that's when I noticed is when I noticed oh these people aren't good at this but I, I am so I guess I must be good at it right you know because yeah. they, they can't get it done they can't talk to these people this way but I can so that, that you know that's that oh yeah okay so what's one that you know you need to work on um patience and that's the one i'm working on is again not feeling like i have to conquer the world all in one moment and that all i have to do is insert pieces into things and and watch them grow as opposed to becoming impatient and and saying well if you don't want to grow with me then i'm going to go somewhere else you know that's the one i'm really working on okay uh second question this one is very hard top three unknown or lesser known new england punk or hardcore bands so not the not the big legendary ones the ones where you're like oh, people should know about this band but they just don't and it could be current bands or historic bands top three new england oh jesus oh, hmm. so it can be people from the past too that mm-hmm. you felt oh, yeah. didn't get their just due and during their time yep hmm. New England area. Hmm. So what's your, I guess, what's your measuring spoon for somebody who's a, you would consider a big band? <laughs> I guess well, that's, let's, let's, let's take that. Let's. Uh, all right. I'll give you an, I'll give you an example if I may. Yeah. Um, there was a band from Bellingham called Jayhawker. And they put out a they put out a demo and a seven inch and their seven inch was like okay, but their demo was killer. Nobody knows who the hell they were, but they were so sick. This demo was great. And I still have the demo, I still listen to it. Legendary in my mind, but people don't know. I'll give you another example. Galleon's Lap, bass player of Sunny Day Real Estate, guitar player of Brotherhood, and then and, and two other guys who I'm, I wasn't sure what else they did. They put out an LP that was incredible. It's called Themes and Variations on Scorch Records. Nobody knows who this band is. Their LP was like a thousand press. Nobody has any idea. It is so good. It's kind of like early, early emo. It was still pretty heavy uh, before emo got like too, like too far into the screamo kind of space. But nobody knows who they are. But like for me, it's like that band, that record was crucial. So there's two Northwest bands that I could say. Okay. Um. This is a tough one. There's I know, so, man. It's the hardest question it, I ask. I ask you. It's uh, well, it doesn't help when you know you see so many bands now, and you're like, oh, are they famous only here, or are they famous everywhere? <laughs> or you know, you're like trying to think in your mind. You're like, um, um, actually, I'll, I'll use that to shout out a a 
a band that is um only around here right now um hopefully they play out more but i was struck by this band because um they they kind of play a metalcore sound mm-hmm. and they they like bands that were obscure when i was a kid like okay i've either i've never seen them or may have seen them once and it it fascinates me that these kids find this music because this is music that's definitely not on spotify or anything Uh and that they're they're picking that up as a thing to emulate um it 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 uh it gives me hope that like there is like this greater free thought in here because i'm like how do these they're, (laughs) they're wearing shirts that are like older than them by like 10 years you know what i mean it's like it's just there's this part of me that's just completely fascinated with it and um and they're they're all good kids and they play good music you know it might not be somebody's cup of tea but it you know because it's metalcore but they're they got the right attitude i like the um they put on a good live show and what are they called it they're called adrian adrian okay yeah all right so Go shout to my to Instagram, you can you can see some pictures of them in there, and I think there's a link on one of them to their to their demo. But they're okay. but again, they it's so funny they the amount of research they did to start a band is is noteworthy. Like they even yeah. recorded their demo with people who recorded these other people's demos. Like they went to that wow. research and went to that same person to record their demo, which that's I think sick. It, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, that's totally sick. All right. So, so two that's, more. that's, two. The, that's the one to look out for. Um, I'll pick one from the middle. Um, Cause I feel like they did more things and I, you probably played with them, but um, I feel like they went into relative unknown or, you know, if you, you said, if you took a kid who's only been around for like eight years, they would, they would be like, who, who are you talking about? Um, and that was a band from the Merrimack Valley called Hammer Brothers. Yeah, I remember Hammer Brothers. Yeah. yeah. I just, you know, again, they had their own like unique thing and it was very local to the Merrimack Valley. I, I mean, I didn't see them much out of there, so I don't know how their reaction was outside of there. But they, they, uh, they melded this like very like, you know, heavy beat with like a thrash kind of like lyrical delivery that I thought was very interesting. I always thought they they didn't kind of get their their just desserts, you know. All right, Hammer Bros. And and anytime that final. anytime that comes on my iPod, yes, I still listen to an iPod. I don't stream. <laughs> I'm never mad about it. It's always it's always good. Okay. Okay. You're into the real life Spotify, not the real Spotify. Yes. Real life Spotify. <laughs> Copyright. And, and, what, <laughs> and what's your third? And the third, I, I would have to say some earlier stuff. There was a, and I actually kind of wish I had it now because I always remembered it being very good. Maybe if I listened to it now, I'd probably be, um, 
I probably think differently, but I don't know. I'd have to dig it up, but it might be in relative obscurity unless I have the demo. Um, and I think John LaCroix was in the band. It was called Trees Without Leaves. Yes, he was in yeah, that band. Yeah. So I always thought that band was awesome. They got a lot of plays. I think the reason I don't have that tape anymore is because I wore it out and, uh, and then maybe left it on the dash and it melted or something. Oof. Well... Shout out to John LaCroix, friend of the show. Great guy. Uh, interesting cat. Um, all right. Those were good picks, man. Definitely pick, definitely, definitely good picks. Can I share a couple with you from Calgary where I grew up? Sure. Uh, there's this band where I grew up called Road Crew Orange. And um, I know, I know. So like the bass player was dyeing his hair one, one day and someone said, what color do you want? He's like orange, but like a specific kind of orange, like, you know, road crews, like the orange vest they wear, I want it to be road crew orange. And that's what they named their band after. Um, they were sick. They kind of like, they were like, as if hardcore kids tried to play dead Kennedys. Like it was like really good. Really. They had two demos. One of them, you can't hear the snare drum at all. You just have to pretend that it's there. And, uh, the other is like, a little bit more hardcore, but like too, the musicianship is too good to just be like a hardcore. It's like awesome. The second second demo is called Cement Wall. I wish they'd had a uh, a vinyl release. If I was in the if I was in the uh, the mood to waste to lose money, thousands of dollars, I would just press it on vinyl. But no one would buy it because nobody would know who they were. But they were fucking great. There, um, there was a so you mentioned this road crew thing, and it, mm-hmm. it just made me think there. There's this band I haven't seen them yet, but I, I probably will soon. Um, from Central Mass. I think they're from Central Mass. I don't know. I just, I saw pictures of them recently and I was talking with them about them with somebody at a show, but they're called Sophisticated Adult. That's and, a good name. And they have, their merch was um, those high-vis construction vests. Good for them. That's really good. And you <laughs> know what? I was like, why are all these people moshing construction vests? Oh, that's their merch. Oh, that's oh, their okay. merch. Marketing geniuses. I would, I would just say I, I, I aspire to be a sophisticated adult, so I need to get in on their merch. All right. Uh, I'll give you another one. There was a band from Calgary called Ninth Configuration, and uh, they were like weird. They were like kind of like arty punk, and they were like awesome. They had two demos. One, this, They had this like kind of butt rocky vibe to them a little bit, but, but through a filter of like arty punk, it was really weird. I've never heard another band like it. They were sick. They could only have existed in the eighties and been popular in the eighties. They were awesome. Ninth configuration. And the third, this will sound strange that I'm calling them obscure. Cause if you're from where I'm from, they're not obscure, but beyond possession, which was uh, like a Calgary band that was like a punk thrash hardcore band that was on metal blade put out like a, a you know put out a or maybe it was, was it metal blade death maybe death records i can't remember they put out they put out an lp on somewhat of a major well major like you know indie major kind of metal label and then they had a, a self-release seven inch and they were sick um okay last question man this is it this is for all the chips uh where can people find you? Where can they look you up? Where they can, where they can, where can they see your work, both uh, from your photography and your professional work? Oh Jesus! <laughs> um, I guess if you want to see my, I, I don't think I really have a, a professional um, thing. If you want to see where I've worked, you can look that up on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have any. Again, 
I've been involved in so many projects. It's so vast and so it's hard to anything, quantify anything. Anything of note that you can tell people you've been involved in um, that you think of as a note? I just completed it and it actually opens in Janu- January. A $1.5 billion addition to Children's Hospital. I mean, that's a little floors. bit of money. That's yeah. a little bit of money. Yeah. Uh, I And I was responsible for paying most people to in that job. And I've never, <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> writing the checks I had to write were ridiculous. I, I, I like that a lot. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then where can they find your, your and, photography work? And if you're, uh, and if you're in Connecticut too, this one was kind of funny. I like to shout this one out. Um, edge fitness, the chain of <laughs> Connecticut gyms called edge fitness. No relation to straight edge. Yeah. The, it's, a, the, it's all related. The two guy, two guys were um, your typical um, meathead kind of um, gym guys. They, Jimmy and Vinny, you know, they want to start every meeting with a fist bump kind of deal. So, but I, I liked their, I liked the name of their, their gym. Well, first of all, <laughs> with actually, names I like heard Jim- it's a pretty good gym too. Well, with names like Jimmy and Vinny, they sound like they're part of the hardcore scene. Like, you know, you know Jimmy, Jimmy Edge, Vinny Edge. All right. And so where can people find your uh, photography? Um, just go on Instagram. It's Storm 99 Hell yeah. And is your book still available? Uh, not technically. I mean, I might have a few copies kicking around, but... <laughs> Not, so would that be not, no? Not not officially. <laughs> wow, it sounds like there's some kind of weird black market of your books that you've got going on there. <laughs> All right, man. Any final words as we're closing off? No, just thanks for uh, having me. It's good to see you. I mean, again, uh, it's so funny. You, adding two years to everything is just like some people. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that was like last year. No, it was like four years ago. You know, it's yeah. like. I don't know when the last time you and I were in the same room. It might have been the React Showcase in Baltimore. Were you there? Um, yeah, that was it. That would be that it. That was it, man. I haven't seen you since then, and that's that. That's 2016. Well, I'm sorry. That change only wants to play Europe and doesn't want to play the United States. I, I... That's not true. We're <laughs> actually, we are actually booking East Coast dates right now, and we might have a Boston show. We're working on it right now. All right. I better see you. Well, man, yeah. I mean, it's tough, you know, like, cause it's not like yeah. we're like a big, we're not like a big band, right? Like, and, and there's one thing I'll say that I feel good about with change is like, like we, me and Chris have had our time as kind of like being like on the bigger shows and doing the bigger tours and doing the bigger fest. And it's kind of cool just being like watching, watching the bands now that are doing it. And of course it's like, yeah, like I want to play like a, big sick show with like 600 people but it's like dude i've had the chance to do that and you can't be like hoarding all the opportunities like well i i want to do it again you know blah 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 it's like nah, it's cool like i'm i i'm not here to play in front of 600 people if it happens awesome great 
I'm here because I love I love hardcore and I love playing. And it's like, you know, if I end up the first show I ever played in Boston was in front of very few people. And if the next show I play in Boston in front of very few people, it's fine. That's cool. Like it, you got to you got to embrace the cycle of what you're a part of and not try and hoard all the responsibility or all the all the um, cool moments. And if I think about it, I think we were saying about like hoarding that spot or gatekeeping that spot where you're like, no, like, you know, of course the young kid can, can take that spot. They deserve it. You know, they're new. They're going to, they're going to learn how they do it, how to do it by being in that spot. And I, I like playing in change because it's with people who are like all of that same mindset that where they're like, yeah, it's cool, man. Like we're just here to play hardcore and have fun with it. And that's like, I don't know. It feels good. It feels really nice just to be playing with people like that. So if we play, uh, if we get, if the show goes through, I'm sure I will see you and I'm sure there will, it will be a very small show, but it'll be awesome. I will, I'll give you a tip of where the vibe is currently. It's so again, there's been a lot of churn in venues and spaces and, you know, and, uh, the current vibe is in Hingham, Massachusetts. So, I like this spot. Um, ever since the pandemic was over, I've been going to shows there mm-hmm. and it brings, you know, the mall goth kids. It brings, you know, the younger hardcore kids. It brings some of the older people and that is a spot. Plus it's only six miles from my house. So if you want to stay at my house, then <laughs> book it in. That's here. what I want to do. All right, man. <laughs> I'll hit you up about it afterwards. All right, Todd, thank you so much for being on the show. As always, dude, you're, uh, I love you. You're a wonderful person, and I'm so happy for all your success. And everybody, we'll see you in the outro. Spencer, drop the beat. One step.